0: One of the most sensational cases in Cincinnati's recent memory is that of the death of 24-year-old Sarah Widmer, allegedly by the hands of her husband, Ryan Widmer. Tonight, we dive into the case with author and former Cincinnati Inquirer reporter, Janice Heisel, as she lays out the details of what happened on that humid August night in 2008. (laughs) Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Cincinnati Cabinet of Curiosities presents the Hometown Haunts podcast. I am your host, Kat Klogo. Along with me is Jen Kohler and Christina Wald on this interesting journey of weird history true crime and haunted objects from cincinnati if you like to follow us on social media you can find us at sin cabinet curio on twitter cincy cabinet of curiosities on instagram and of course we take your own hometown haunted mail at hometown haunted mail at gmail.com please send us your true ghost stories weird history creepy cryptids anything that has Anything to do with the strange and spooky, we would love to hear about it from your neck of the woods. Also, we're an official podcast that can be heard on YouTube, iTunes, Spotify, Amazon, and SoundCloud. You can find us by searching us at Cincinnati Cabinet of Curiosities. Please rate and review us out there. Mm. Please rate and review us so other spooky and weird history lovers just like you can find us. Of course, there are links in the show notes. Thank you, Jen, for doing all that work also christina would like me to let you all know that our next issue of the cabinet of curiosities is almost finished and you can get a copy of your own this october during our kickstarter it starts october 4th 2021 and we have a whole bunch of fun spooky things to introduce you to such as the screaming bridge of Maud Hughes road the Ghosts of the sorg opera house a true uh, ghost story from the chillicothe gazette plus much much more Yes, it will be fun. Um, and also, you've probably heard some of the stories because we've had some of the artists on earlier in the year. Now, on to our guest tonight. Our guest is Janice Heisel, who has worked more than two decades as a journalist before becoming a freelance writer and award-winning author of Submerged, Brian Widmer, His Drowned Bride, and the Justice System. Submerged explores the hidden angles of a nationally publicized bathtub drowning mystery which Janice covered for the Cincinnati Inquirer through three spellbinding trials. Spellbinding is a kind way to describe that. She has written a biography of a Cincinnati area philanthropist, a comforting light, cancer crusader Mary Jo Cooper, and her legacy of hope. The book raised more than $10,000 for the breast care center that Ms. Cooper founded at Bethesda North Hospital prior to her death. All proceeds from that book go to the center. Janice is now under contract to write a third book, which is expected to be released in early to mid-2022. The book, a memoir, chronicles a mother's fight for justice, one of the most extraordinary tales that Janice has ever encountered. A summa cum laude graduate of Kent State University, yes, another Kent State graduate has joined as a guest, Janice formerly worked for the newspapers in Dayton, Youngstown, and Kent, Ravenna, all in Ohio before her 15-year stint at the Enquirer. Earlier this year, Janice took on an additional role as a communications director for the Germ- Germania Society of Cincinnati, a nonprofit organization that celebrates the city's proud German heritage. On the side, Janice teaches group fitness classes, so her feet stay as busy as her keyboard does. And she and her husband, Michael, have competed as natural athletes in the sport of bodybuilding, which I want to know more about. So, welcome to the show, Janice.
1: Well, thank you so much for having me. It's really a pleasure to talk about this case, even though the case itself is so difficult and, and very emotionally taxing. It's one of those cases that just gets in your mind, you know, like an earworm, like a song that won't go away. That's this case.
0: Yes, it was very spooky. I'm going to speak from a personal note because I'm her age and my husband is his age and we got married one year before they did. And it was very spooky because of the life steps that they're going through were in tandem with us. And we moved to Cincinnati right before all this happened. So as just a person who was of the same age set, I'm like, wow, this is really spooky. And I remember these things. So that was just spooky, I guess, is the best way. Jen, you (laughs)
2: introduced Janice to our show. How How do you two know each other? We worked work together at the Enquirer and uh, yeah, Janice has always been a, for, a force to be reckoned with, I have to say. Okay. It, yeah. Well, no, in a good way, in a good way. Like I, one thing I remember most about you was when we would be in our meetings and you would, you would ask the questions like a good reporter would, I mean, cause a lot of the times you're not going to ask your boss. Are there going to be layoffs what are you going to do about this and janice was always right there asking those hard questions and you still do that so
1: i appreciate that yeah
0: yeah it it takes a lot of i'm going to say experience to be able to do that just to have the confidence to just go out and ask those hard questions so how did you get involved with covering the story in the first place
1: well, it was my job because the way the inquiry had responsibilities set up, I was covering suburban cops and courts, as we called it. And so when the Winmer case came along, Warren County, where this happened, tends to be kind of a sleepy place in terms of crime. We're talking, it's, you know, very um middle-class to upper middle-class suburban, most of the communities, there are some, you know, farming and, you know, a few, you know, people who are uh, not of financial means, you know, low, lower uh, economic uh, level, but it's mostly middle-class and kind of, you know, boring the mom and dad and 2.5 kids or 1.5 kids, you know? And so I remember not long before the Winmer case happened, one of the controversial cases was when the prosecutor decided to press charges against kids who'd had a food fight in the Mason cafeteria. So this (laughs) is the kind of community we're talking about here. So when the Wiener case happens, you know, murder, you know, the headline, you know, homicide, um, it really gripped people here locally, but it also had a huge reach beyond just little Warren County throughout greater Cincinnati and even nationwide. And even after I wrote my book, I got a ton of sales, believe it or not, in Australia because there was a really weird bathtub case there. I found out that people were still curious about that happened even earlier than the Widmer case. So again, what happened, of course, was that Sarah Widmer did drown in her bathtub and her husband, Ryan, was the only other person home. And because of that, everybody thought, it's simple. There's no sign of drugs. There's no sign of intruder. Of course he did it. But when you find out a little more about the case, all of a sudden, it's not as simple as it seems on the surface.
0: Mm-hmm. I found it interesting that it was one of those rare cases where you had a battle of the coroners and their autopsy mm-hmm. reports, which I was like, okay, good. interesting case going on here It was complicated. So you've actually had the opportunity to talk to Ryan in person. Correct. Yeah. Uh, Yeah.
1: Um, When I decided that I was going to do the book, and I would like to explain if it's okay. How did I decide to finally do the book? I left this as an inquirer because there was a constant threat of layoffs. And I went into an unrelated field for three years. But this case, again, like that earworm, kept going and going through my mind, especially because I live a stone's throw pretty much where all this happened. Oh. And I would constantly drive past places that played a role in the case. For example, the firehouse is on my way home from almost anywhere I go. And I would think, oh, that's where the ambulances were dispatched from, you know, from that firehouse to try to go and save Sarah Widmer. Even when I look at my own bathtub and I've had other women tell me this, when they look at their bathtub, if they're, if they're familiar with this case, you go, go, gosh, what could have happened to her other than if he didn't do it, what are the other possibilities? So I felt kind of a personal connection to this, not only because I covered all three of the trials, but because I live in the same community where it occurred. And just passing all of those reminders. And even people who know me and know that I covered the case would stop me in the grocery store and say, hey, is there anything new, even years later? So I couldn't get it off my mind. And finally, my husband just said, you know what? Quit your job, write your book. You'll never forgive yourself if you don't. So Mm -hmm. that's what happened.
0: Smart man. Yeah. And it's a good book. I love how detailed you are um as a fellow author, but I write history books about haunted locations, but I really love just like you went down how many bathtub desks there were that year and just kind of broke down the numbers from there. And I'm like, that's really impressive. I like that kind of work. So uh, I appreciate yeah. that.
1: So you did ask me about talking with Ryan. Yes. And I felt a little bit strange about contacting him several years after he was convicted. I had had zero contact with him. I did interview him. I was the first local reporter to get an interview with him. Dateline scooped everybody. There was some special agreement, I guess, with the lawyers. So Dateline did an interview with him. um, And then I was the first local reporter to get an interview in prison. And prison interviews are always even though I've done a few of them, you still feel almost like it's the first time that you've ever done one because you're nervous, you're under a lot of pressure, everybody's watching, you have to go through all the metal detectors and the, there's a lot of protocol involved. You even have to get permission to have a notebook and pen because mm-hmm. at, oh. you, you have to be searched and you know, there's a lot to it. And you have a limited time to ask the questions that you need to. So when I originally contacted him through his father, and said, Hey, can't get this case off my mind. I would like to do a book. would you willing to cooperate? From what I understood, he had no hesitation. So I sat down and talked with him. I think the first time for, uh, when I was still at the inquirer, I did an interview for about two and a half to three hours, I believe. And then after that, when I decided to write the book, that would have been 2017 that I contacted him. So he was convicted six years prior to this and I had no contact with him. So I just said, hey, will you cooperate? We sat down and I repeatedly, because I was no longer a member of the working press, I had to just go in and talk to him from the time the visitation started, 8.30 in the morning until 3.30 in the afternoon. And I couldn't take any notes. And I had to go out to my car at the end of the interviews and write everything that I could remember. And then you can only have a 15 minute phone call with someone through the week. So uh, he would call me and I would go, Hey, this is what I have written down. Would you say that's accurate? Like to check everything. That's how I wow. had to write this book. It was pretty difficult. Yeah. Um, so, but I was determined I was going to do this and, um, one of the things that was kind of more interesting is I'm in the middle of this huge room. It's almost like a cafeteria. If you picture your school cafeteria is how it looks for the visiting and there are tables and tables and little, little Parsons tables with a couple of chairs around them when the other inmates are having visits with family, friends, whoever. And so big room full of probably 25, 30, 40 inmates right around there. And I was trying to figure out what Ryan's story was about how he found Sarah. So he was too shy to demonstrate it. So I go, okay, so was it like this? And I'm standing up and I'm scooping my arms down, like I'm lifting up a deadweight body and i'm i'm stomping around and turning like with his direction to try to understand so people were looking at me in this big prison visiting room like i was a crazy woman which i probably am but so there were that was one of the more memorable moments um in speaking with ryan
0: wow that that is certainly a memorable
2: moment (laughs) yeah yeah wow I can't, a lot I can't of reporters imagine. do not have that opportunity. Mm-hmm. You think they would, but a lot do not. And I think Ryan has always been pretty open with you. Is that correct?
1: There was a gag order in place for a while, like that, that no one that was a party to the case, meaning the lawyers, the direct, direct witnesses that were going to be Mm -hmm. called to the testify. Those people were not allowed to talk to the press until after the case was over. But interestingly, after I did get Ryan to cooperate with me for the book, there is not a single question I can think of where he even hesitated or said, why do you want to know that he answered? everything i asked and jen as you pointed out i did not let this man skate
2: good good
1: i i yeah yeah that's not
2: my so for
0: for our listeners who don't live in the cincinnati area or haven't heard of this trial even though it was nationwide news here we do have a lot of listeners in india so hi but could you give a brief synopsis of what happened that august night
1: Well, sure. So Sarah had been out of town and she came home. It was a Monday evening. So she came home a Sunday night and then Monday things went as normal, except at her workplace. She worked for a dentist in Fort Thomas. She was a dental hygienist, went to her job. But everyone who worked with her, who was called to testify, said on that particular day, she she didn't feel well. Her head hurt, the back of her neck hurt, and she just was feeling not herself and pretty crummy. And so then she comes home from work. She and Ryan have dinner. Again, normal Monday night. Bengals were playing a pregame, I believe against the Packers, but who cares because it's (laughs) pregame. And um, so Ryan had stated to his lawyers that, He was watching the Bengals game and she said, you know, I'm really tired. I don't feel well. I'm going to go upstairs and take my bath now. And she was a big fan of taking relaxing baths. So he said he flicked the channel around a few times because the Olympics were also on at that point. This would have been 2008. And so when he goes upstairs, the master bedroom and bathroom were kind of, you know, connected like a, like a master suite. And first he went into the bedroom and flicked on the TV again. And then he went to check on her and he finds her unresponsive in the bathtub. So from there, he's trying to figure out what to do. This is what, according to what he said to me, and also what he told his lawyers, I found documents in the lawyer's basement that tracked with what he told me. And there, he was consistent with what he told me. And he had no way of knowing that anyone other than his lawyers would see the paperwork that I Obtained. And he did give permission for his lawyers to give me access to everything. So, all right. So he says he goes upstairs to check on Sarah. She's unresponsive in the tub. And then he calls 911. Well, the first call dropped on, I forget whose phone he used first either hers or his. Then he picked up the other phone, called again. That was portrayed in court by the prosecutors as a certain hesitancy, like that he didn't want to call 911. But if that's the case, why would you call again right away? It wasn't like right. 20 minutes later. It was right away. Another well, phone and
2: cell phones drop calls all the time, especially then. Yeah. Oh, yeah.
1: And especially yeah. where I live, I can tell you, it's like a black hole, especially back yeah. then it's gotten better. I think now with, uh, What are we with 5G or whatever we are now? Uh, But it it dropped calls quite a bit. And so I found that to be very believable that that's, that could happen very plausible. Uh, So the detective who was sent to the scene, the lead detective, thought something's bad wrong. That's his direct quote. Something's bad wrong here. And there were another, uh, a number of other people who felt like something wasn't right. They checked the trash can for any sign of like drugs that she could have overdosed on, for example, no sign of that. Originally they didn't think she had any medical problems or anything and there's no sign of forced entry. They're searching this house top to bottom while Ryan is in the ambulance heading to the hospital or actually I think he was, yeah, he was in the ambulance heading to the hospital with Sarah. And so then, they start to feel like, of course he did it. Of course he drowned her. But the weird thing is there was no sign of any obvious injury on her body anywhere. And to me, this is one of the big mysteries of this case. How do you drown a person and leave no broken fingernails? no bruise on the nose like if you're pushing the head down for example chin you would think all of those areas would be vulnerable you would think also that that if you were being attacked you would be grabbing at the hands and his hands were completely unscathed his entire body no one noticed he was in his boxer briefs when the medics and police arrived they saw no sign of injury on him and not on her.
0: Wow so that that's the first loop thrown. Yeah, just to make this an extremely confusing and
1: complicated trial and court case so, and there was also no water everywhere, you would think if there was a forced drowning that there would have been this violent struggle in fact that was the term originally used by the prosecution, when they did a news conference violent struggle that there was evidence found upon autopsy that was evidence of violent struggle. Everybody's going, what is it? And I was thinking, gosh, she like bash her head in. And that's why it wasn't visible except during the autopsy. You know, I just couldn't figure out what it could possibly be. And here it turns out there were, there was deep bleeding inside of the neck and down here into the upper chest. And the medics had inserted a needle and the defense, expert said that that needle, it's common for needles to ooze blood. And that yeah. he said all of the blood could have been caused by the needle, but the prosecution is saying, no, it's actually murder most foul. This is a sign of trauma to the neck. So that is where the crux of the case is in terms of actual evidence, like hardcore physical evidence. Mm-hmm. Um, there were a few random bruises that showed up later on her body, which often happens. This is Difficult to say, but anybody who knows about true crime cases knows that, um, there, when a body starts to go through the natural process of decomposition, there can be latent injuries that start to materialize as a result of that mm-hmm. process. But interestingly, the antecubital fossa, which is right here, you know, how you take give blood mm-hmm. in the crook of your elbow. And, uh, that had a four inch bruise on Sarah from a tiny needle. And so the, again, defense version of this is that, look, these other small bruises that showed up on her, they were all exaggerated because what happens inside the body when you drown, it makes your red blood cells burst. So any injury looks worse, including that little tiny needle prick causing a four inch bruise. But again, upon when they first found her, no sign of any bruising, any injuries. That was obvious to anyone. Mm-hmm. Were
2: there any
1: signs of strangulation? Like was her hyoid bone broken or anything? Great question. That was a big point of contention. The, the defense really keyed in on that and said, hey, if he had tried to you know, drown her this way, that would have been most likely broken because the hyoid bone is a very small, vulnerable bone. And, and it's one of the telltale signs of a strangulation. Mm-hmm. And that was intact, hmm. Hmm.
2: and nothing on her shoulders or anything like no bruising on her shoulders.
1: There was a small, uh, like a abrasion, a tiny, tiny scratch under her armpit. There was also a little bit of a, a bruising pattern along one side of her head, but. The Even the prosecution witnesses testified that those bruises were very minor and it wouldn't have been enough, in their opinion, to knock her out, for example. So the defense is trying to paint this picture of her having a medical issue that causes her to collapse, possibly banging her head somehow, and then drown.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, but her body was found dry, warm and dry, I believe, was what the... uh paramedics said or was it the police when they arrived and she was in he had moved her from the bathroom to the bedroom the floor of their bedroom correct
1: yes uh actually he was told to get her out of the tub and put her on a flat surface now Mm -hmm. one of the things that is interesting about what the prosecution says and and what the Police perceive versus what Ryan says happened and his what his lawyers say happened. He says that when he found her, it was his instinctive reaction to sit her up, prop her up against the tub, her so her heads out of the water, and then pull the drain plug. So the water is starting to drain, drain, drain. And as her the water is draining, then reasonably her body is becoming more and more exposed to the air air conditioning running at the, you know, middle of August. Right. Mm -hmm. So possibly causing that skin to start to dry as more and more exposed. And he's still at this point kind of trying to figure out what's going on according to him, trying to get a response from her, uh, Sarah, Sarah, she's not responding, then scrambles to find cell phone one, followed by cell phone two. So I did a little test. and This is one of the flaws of this case, in my opinion, on both the prosecution and defense part. Nobody timed how long it takes a bathtub to drain, especially like that bathtub. Don't you think he would want to know that if the the timing of it and the timing of the 911 call is considered so important because of the supposedly dry condition of the body? Now her hair was wet. Mm -hmm. And so- Anyway, so that would make sense if you in fact, one of the witnesses testified it took him only seven minutes for his body to feel dry. And that actually tracks with the length of time between when when Ryan finds her you have a minute or two to be puzzled and make that first phone call he's asked one minute into the call is she still in the tub. Yes, even they said the water's completely drained at that point. Then. It's about five to six more minutes before the first police officer is in the house. You can hear the sirens at the three minute and 30 second mark and see what TV show that Shami mean, remain was not Dateline, but one of these investigative TV shows. They're going, oh, you know, the cops were there and like, you know, you can hear the sirens. That doesn't mean they're in the house. <laughs> you know, they were saying that it was only five minutes and it was really more like seven minutes But I did a test on my own bathtub. Again, that's not scientific, but it took only two minutes for my tub to drain from the overflow level down. Now, I don't know about the drainage of this particular tub, but I think somebody should have looked at that and they didn't. So- That is a
0: very good point.
1: Yeah. So if you just slip into the water because you're like, there's something, this is something very, very curious about Sarah Widmer. It came out from her own brother that she had- fallen asleep in odd places everybody who knew Sarah that testified would admit it to this other than her mother her mother said this did not happen but her friends her coworkers, uh, would all say that you know she's at a Bengals game in the middle of the day crowd cheering and she's asleep And so what could that possibly be? Well, a lot of people think narcolepsy is just uncontrollable falling asleep. The actual definition of narcolepsy is that you have excessive daytime sleepiness. She would go out to her car on purpose and go to sleep at her lunch break. If she got to work early because of like traffic or whatever being quicker than anticipated, she would sleep until and set like an alarm on her phone. She was always, always sleepy. So that begs the question, did she have narcolepsy? Narcolepsy, 80% of narcoleptics have something called cataplexy, which get this is paralysis of all of your voluntary muscles, everything except your heart and your breathing, right? So if that happens to you when you're in a bathtub, we could have a very awful, deadly result. And so that is one of the big theories. However, the autopsy was done in such a way that her, the section of her brain that controls sleep wasn't preserved. The whole brain wasn't preserved. So they couldn't section that off and find whether there were signs of this particular neuron being gone. Mm-hmm. So now we don't know. So that, there are so many big fat question marks that we just don't know. Yeah, and, right. and I found flaws in the case. I mean, there's flaws in every case, but with that draining of the tub and no one timed it and no one presented that in court in any way.
2: Mm-hmm. see and i had a question sure. about the tub or uh, and falling asleep in the tub because the more i have gotten into true crime and i see the stories they always say you don't drown you don't fall asleep and drown because your body will react and wake up uh to the shock of it so I I always kind of wondered about that, but that, I didn't know you could be paralyzed with narcolepsy and that is terrifying.
1: I know. And just recently, in fact, quite a few times over, you know, since my book was released, I've had people contact me and tell me that they had this very scenario happen and they would have died had it not been for the fact that a roommate discovered them. I had a young man recently, very recently, tell me that he wasn't in the bathtub, but he described what happens to him at night. He said he wants to scream and he cannot because he is paralyzed. He has this condition. Yes. Traditionally, folklore calls this old hag syndrome. (laughs)
0: where an old hag or a demon sits on your chest and you can still see things people were this is fun people will uh report seeing demons around them or in more 20th century alien abductions have often been associated with this and yeah it can be narcolepsy there's a few different uh, disorders that could cause this so yeah that's just inserting that folklore bit into this true crime podcast today (laughs)
1: See well, you know, it is spooky to think about since you use that word spooky it is can you imagine how terrifying it would be yeah. if you have awareness that you are absolutely you're powerless to to move to do anything yeah. to save yourself and you're drowning drowning that's my
2: worst fear worst fear
1: oh i i just think mm-hmm. a lot of people probably have i mean people probably be being Afraid of spiders and snakes. Well, I'm sorry. You can run from a snake pretty well and you can maybe whack the spider or run from the spider. But if you are paralyzed and in a bathtub, whoa, that is, mm-hmm. uh, it is bone chilling, bone chilling to me to think about. I just, uh, and that's one of the reasons, again, I, I've often, and just like you cat, I think that a lot of people find ways to see themselves in the place of either Ryan or Sarah or maybe Ryan's mother or maybe Sarah's mother, because these were ordinary people. These weren't people that you expect the worst to happen to. These are, you know, not drug dealers out on the street and people just go, okay, well, you get what you deserve because, you know, you were dealing in drugs and doing risky behavior. This is just a, a couple newlywed, married four months, watching TV, and then the next thing you know, all hell breaks loose. Yeah, it's, yeah, that was an interesting
0: thing, just reading the different family members and friends' testimonials, just how they were so surprised by this. And I guess one thing my short life has taught me is always expect the worst, you're (laughs) never safe. But maybe I've watched too much true crime. Um, <laughs> that also could be, uh, um, oh, that was a question that I had. Oh, out of concern. I am. Did anyone bring Sarah awareness that she may have narcolepsy and have her go to a doctor to get it ch- checked out? I have a friend who does have narcolepsy and one of their st- one of their fears is actually driving and having an episode and killing someone. So that was when I read that this was something that had been reported by her friends and family. I was like, well, did no one ever get, like, did she ever go to a doctor?
1: Well, uh, according to a nurse who was a friend of her, she actually was in a couple who kind of played matchmaker to set up Ryan and Sarah at the very beginning of their relationship. They were pretty close friends and she became a nurse and she actually said that when she was still working she was I think a receptionist at the dental office while she was going through nursing school and Sarah that's how they met she and Sarah and Sarah would report seeing spots like visual disturbances and stuff and she just she always had really bad headaches And her friend Dana would say to her, don't you think you should get this checked out? And her sleepiness was also an issue. It was to the point where it was almost, in a way, it was kind of annoying to some of her friends. And in a way, it was like kind of comical to some of her friends. They actually gave her a nickname tag that said sleeper. You know how... Uh, baby showers ladies have like these crazy games we play to make it fun and like you have to have a nickname related to something of babies and hers was sleeper like a sleeper outfit haha so she said that Sarah just kind of always blew off the concerns and said oh it's just my allergies um I'll be fine she was the kind of person who didn't want to make a big deal of it according to Ryan he did tell Sarah to to ask her doctor to look into this and think about it. If you go to your doctor and you kind of just say it, like, I don't really think it's a big deal. What my husband wants me to tell you, I have this problem, <laughs> blah, blah, blah. Then maybe the doctor didn't even, you know, the, the doctor, I know from my own experience, cause I've seen my own medical records. And sometimes like you have this big conversation with the doctor and like, there's like one note, you know, they don't go into all the details. So there is no record of showing specifically, um it said something about her being tired and the defense the prosecution said well it was just because of of the stress of her job and that she had lost her dad her dad had died of cancer um Mm -hmm. not long before she passed away I think maybe Mm -hmm. less than a year a few months yeah it was
0: about a year he so the reason why I note this is her father died of the same thing my dad died of and i was just like oh so he died march of 2007 and she died of august of 2008 and i was like oh wow oh. yeah so huh. and then they got married in between those two big events like true yep now what was their relationship like beforehand like they weren't married very long and they didn't know each other much longer before that
1: so interestingly, the friends who testified for Ryan and Sarah, including one of Sarah's best friends, who, to me, ladies, you know how we are. We will talk about our men to our girlfriends if they are being, you know, oh, he's being an ass tonight. You know, you'll mm-hmm. say that. Can I say ass on the podcast? Um, yeah. but, uh, <laughs> so ladies will say things like that. And one of her very best friends did speak to her the night she died. And she didn't give any indication that there was any fight, that there was any discord that particular evening. So it's a lot of speculation what did happen that night. I am conceding, of course, there could have been something happening that she didn't feel she wanted to disclose to her friend. But normally a lot of ladies would spout off to their girlfriend, oh, he's being such an ass tonight or whatever. And there was nothing like that this evening. Um, So their relationship from almost all accounts was that they were almost sickeningly lovey-dovey. In fact, Mm -hmm. Dana, the nurse that I told you about, she and her husband, Chris, were kind of like parallel to Ryan and Sarah because the guy in the relationship was, yes, dear, yes, dear, kind of the Mm hen-pecked kind of guy. And the ladies were more like, take charge. (laughs) And they thought that was kind of a good symbiotic relationship. And that's why they played matchmaker, They're like, hey, we get along really well. I bet Ryan and Sarah would get along really well because they have this similar dynamic. And according to neighbors I spoke to, they were, quote unquote, so cute with how they behaved. But then the prosecution side of this is, who knows what lurks behind closed doors, you know, kind of thing, which again, I can concede that that is a distinct possibility that there could have been some, you know, discord or big fight that blew up that we don't know about. Um, The prosecution, of course, was saying that, of course, that's what happened. Um, But there was no proof of any of that. There was no proof of an affair. There was no proof of there was no life insurance that he stood to gain. In fact, he stood to lose money upon her death because she made more than he did. Um, So it's another reason that this is a mystery is what would be the motive
0: mm-hmm. yeah that was what struck me okay jen sorry i'm just going to say this now
2: I, I don't think he killed her i i have never been able to like really i've always been like well you, you just don't you don't know you really don't know but after again i'm going to go back to all the true crime stories that i've seen he does not seem like the typical typical guy that's gonna kill his wife.
1: You know, it just he's college educated, no history of violence. Um in fact, he had to reach way back in his to his childhood when he was 10 and he he went off on some guy about a sports thing once when he was like 10. I mean people said that he he, was kind of walk away from fights in sports. He was a baseball player in college.
2: Yeah that just doesn't fit the the pro (laughs) fit the profile I am not educated in forensics or police work or anything like that. Just let me put that out there. It just doesn't, he just doesn't seem like the killer type. Again, anyone can kill. Mm -hmm. It just, even, even if he did it, I don't think they proved it at all. And I don't think he should be in jail.
1: Well, you know, that is an, a an assessment that I hear a lot from people. Um, yeah. And also, I want to I think it's very interesting that people, the more people know about the case, the more either on the fence or more they are thinking he's innocent. The people who just know the bare bones about the case that, mm-hmm. you know, she drowned in the bathtub, that he was the only one home. Of course he did it. If they just know the bare bones facts, they tend to believe he did it. But then when you start to present them with the no injuries on the body and then the weird sleepiness and then the way the investigation had these holes in it and the lead detective had very minimal training on death investigation. I think it was like four hours of death investigation training in this small community. And you know that he was definitely a media hound in my opinion. He was the kind of guy who loved to talk to the press, and I loved to talk to him because he gave good quotes. So it was a symbiotic yeah. relationship there, right? If you're a new, yeah, you need those those chatty Kathy kind of. Uh, police officers who are going to give you those good quotes and the good information. And he did. So I knew this guy prior to this case, but the more the case went on and I would kind of pull him aside and I would say, Hey, what about this? I know you can't talk to me about it now, but can you like, give me the scoop after this is all over? I really want to know. And then I remember I put this in the book. I said, okay, the case is over. Tell me about like, why did you feel like you had to move so quickly and charge him in two days? And he goes, well, he had a lot of contacts in other states. Well, most people do. So that didn't do anything for me. That did, that wasn't convincing to me. I was kind of like, that's all you got? Like, that's why you got to charge a guy in two days and not do further investigation?
2: I yeah. It,
1: I, I will say this,
0: Jen. Hold your thought. Um, I'm holding. <laughs> we're We're not here to cast judgment on oh. the case at all. We're just looking at the case. So for our listeners there, I'm not going to ever say what I think.
2: <laughs> Thank you for well, sharing your thought, Jen. Should, should I not say that? It's okay. I mean,
0: we now know. Look, it's fine. It's,
2: our, it's armchair. You, you never know what, again, you do not know what goes behind closed doors. We weren't there. Mm-hmm. The only two people that know are Ryan and Sarah. And you can do your best to piece things together after the fact, but what what gets me sometimes with cases is that the police or the prosecution get stuck on one theory and they do everything they can to prove their theory, whether or not it's the truth. Like, it's not like they go after the truth. They just need to get a conviction, right? I mean, maybe that's cynical of me, but it just, it just doesn't seem like the the system is set up for the truth. Yeah, uh, that's human nature.
1: Yeah, well, yeah. I've had um, some police officers read the book and say mm-hmm. that one of the problems with the justice system is that as soon as that charge is made, it's very difficult to go, um, never mind about that murder charge um, yeah. or the rape charge or whatever, the, the if it's a big case, it gets a lot of publicity. Do you remember the Duke University lacrosse situation? Yes. And, you know, how long it took for it to come out, what really happened there? Mm-hmm. Um, how awful for those young men to be accused, right? Yeah. And, and like it's almost like they dig their heels in, and then there's very little accountability if they are wrong, or there's very little right. attempt to go kind of like a debrief and go what went wrong here how can we prevent this from happening again so i'm not saying one way or another whether that is what happened in this case what i am saying okay. is there were enough mistakes made and there is enough doubt that it's very difficult to sort out what is the truth here what is yes. the truth mm-hmm. That's so, one of the reasons. yeah go ahead
2: so uh, i was just gonna say in your experience with working with the police for all those years at the Enquirer, like Are they like, I always want to think like the police are there to protect you, but things obviously state of the world has been not great for them, but I can't believe that every single one of them is just out to get you. I don't know where I'm going with this. Like, are they, why can't they, I guess the system is set up the way that they can't, like, even if they have their theory and they find out they're wrong, they can't just pivot to a new theory or do they need some sort of kind of hard
1: evidence to get away from their theory? There's a lot of concern about public perception in a high profile case. And Mm -hmm. so it does make it very difficult to pivot away from it once that initial charge would be made. And one of the things I thought was very interesting and concerning about this case was in the middle of the first, of the prosecution's case in trial number one remember there were three trials first trial mm-hmm. he was convicted but it was set aside because of juror misconduct trial two was a hung jury they just couldn't reach a unanimous decision trial three he did get convicted after only 12 hours of deliberation which was one third of the length of time just about that right the previous jury deliberated mm-hmm. so Very interesting. But anyhow, so one of the things that happened is the prosecution filed a document in the middle of that first week of trial one that said that the the homicide, if you can call it a homicide as opposed to a death from some other cause, but that's what they're alleging, homicide happened in the bathtub, toilet, sink, other water containing fixture. I'm like what like this was supposed to be the bathtub murder right so why did they change that in the middle of the their process their presentation of their case and I talked to a bunch of attorneys who and prosecutors from other places you know behind the scenes I said isn't it unusual to have that document it's called a bill of particulars changed at midstream and they said Yeah, I've actually not really seen that happen. And that gave me, made my heart skip a beat because I said to myself, my goodness, do they even know what happened here? And a man is on trial for murder. It made my mind start to really approach this in a lot more of a skeptical way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I was just gonna say I do
2: have respect for homicide detectives and it's not easy what they do and I could not solve cases the way they do. I just love spouting off after you know everything is done and you you're watching it on TV and you yell at the TV and going well no shit, <laughs> <laughs> you know. Well, but in the moment, it's not like that. <laughs> yeah, visiting crime scenes with fresh
0: bodies is very oh, difficult. It's yes. it's never pretty. Yeah. What they no. and they're doing what I heard a lot of them say is they're doing the best they can with what they have. Yes. Right. It's really what all of us are trying to do right now. And
1: and I think that there's not, I don't think that, I think there's very few of them that sit there and go, Oh, I'm going to get this guy no matter what. I think it's a subconscious thing. They're not even aware that they have developed tunnel vision and they're not seeing this important fact over here and this important fact over here because they're right here. And mm-hmm. I don't think that it's intentional for, uh, of course, they're going to be bad out oh, in yeah every profession. There may be yeah. a few who in, are intentionally out to get someone. But I think that yeah. when justice does go awry, that is often as a human foible, basically. A
2: yeah. Sort of yeah. Oh, I, w- I would agree with that. Yeah, I, yeah. You would have to be pretty evil to deliberately Oh my God. I they, I can't even imagine. It'd be pretty bad for you to deliberately send someone to yeah. jail for life for no flipping reason, just because yes. you thought you were right. And yeah. I, I hope that doesn't happen.
0: Right. <laughs> yeah. And also on the flipping thing, the cultural zeitgeist doesn't really like flipping of opinions too often. We have this problem pop up in a lot of different uh, avenues of our culture. So it's just people, our culture just does not like flipping they like to have black and white everything explained like it's an episode of a crime show so which leads us to trial number one and the jury misconduct that happened within it so what happened at jury or not jury number one trial (laughs) number one
1: well after ryan was convicted it was interesting because the jury he was actually facing aggravated murder as well as straight murder as we call it Now, aggravated murder means that you planned it to some degree, even momentarily. And so they decided the aggravated murder was not there. They did go with the murder, which is just the intentional killing of another person. So not
0: manslaughter.
1: No. But just straight up murder. Yes, yes. And so they weren't even given the option in trial one of manslaughter. Interestingly, I'm skipping ahead for you, but trial three, that was uh, manslaughter was on the table. In fact, so was a plea deal that Ryan turned down. We'll get to that later. And, but anyhow, so for this trial, the jurors, it came out, one of the jurors was feeling uneasy in the immediate days, right after the conviction came out. And there was actually a public uproar. I don't know if you guys remember this, but there was a lot of people who thought, my gosh, it doesn't seem like they proved the case. How did this happen? And so this man, he was feeling uneasy about some things that happened during the deliberations. And he actually kept a diary about his concerns. He finally, after consulting with his wife and some friends, decided that he wanted to come forward with the concerns that he had. And he revealed that, Jurors were doing something that is considered a no-no. They were doing some investigation on their own. It's a standard jury instruction to be told: you do not go on Wikipedia, you don't go on the internet, you don't, you know. There's a huge long list. The jury instructions usually take about a half an hour at least to read, and the judge does read those into the record. Then the jurors are given a written copy to refer to as they're doing their work. And um, so, this man revealed that some jurors said, "Well, hey, I laid down on the carpet naked, and it only took this long for my bo- it took this long for my body to dry, and then someone else, you know." Stated, well, my grandson, you pulled him out of the tub and he was still wet after this length of time and why wasn't she and so there were various things like this going on. And at first the prosecution was trying to say, well, these are just normal observations, but I call BS on that because who lays down naked on the carpet to see how long you're let less experiment? (laughs) I just, I'm sorry. That just does not happen in daily life. I can buy the grandson. (laughs) Maybe you do notice that and then you bring that into the deliberation, but none of that is scientific. And so for that reason, and especially because one of the jurors said that, or maybe more than one, I don't remember exactly, but at least one juror, if not more said that changed their opinion of his guilt and shifted their vote into the guilty column. So that is how he ended up having his conviction overturned, which was a huge deal because that hardly ever happens. Yeah. And um, when that happened, then he was released on bond, goes to trial a second time, and as I mentioned, that was a hung jury. And what was very interesting to me is some jurors from trial two, Came to trial three and they made an observation. Remember, I said that Sarah's mother made some different statements compared to other people. Now, nothing against her. I have compassion for this woman or anybody who would lose a child. However, her testimony, according to the jurors I talked to and my own opinion, my own observations, it did change. She started off in trial one kind of saying, Well, yeah, they would kind of argue over, you know, did you spend too much at Target? And then by trial three, they were hateful to each other. Whoa. (laughs) where did that come from? Because no one else made any remarks along these lines. So it was interesting. And I don't know what caused that to to change, but that was an observation I made and that jurors also made and shared with me. That is
0: an interesting observation because there was what, um, a year in between the two trials, correct?
1: Um, Actually, the first trial happened in 2009 and the second trial was 2010 and the third trial was 2011
0: okay so there was just two years in between that she's had two years to kind of think about or stew on what happened so that may have i i really don't know what went on in her mind but things can intensify jen has disappeared okay (laughs) (laughs) but yeah that that is an interesting observation at least with it seems to have escalated between those two years.
1: Yeah. And I don't know. I I don't pretend to know what happened there. And Mm -hmm. they, they tend to be very private people and they did ask for privacy. I did try to reach them, um, wrote letters and an email and things like that to ask Mm -hmm. if they wanted to participate in the book. Then they did not.
0: Yeah. I can see why losing a husband and then losing your daughter, Was she an only child or did she have any siblings?
1: She had a brother. And the brother, okay. one of the ones who said he that she had fallen asleep in the tub before, and that's another thing. There's kind of a, I think a little bit of a misconception in this case because people assume that Ryan was using this as an alibi or like a like an excuse for, but and it, that could be true. But the defense version is that, and his version, what he sh- he shared with me is that this was his perception of what he thought happened because he gets there and she's just unresponsive, and he's like, well, she, he, he knew she had fallen asleep. In the tub before, so he thought that's what happened again, and but then the the police and the prosecution are looking at this. Aha, he's coming up with a cover story for murder, which is mm-hmm. possible. It is possible.
0: Yeah, it, it's uh, something that was brought up actually by my husband when I was talking about this case. He's just like, well, and mind you, he only knows the bare bones of this. He has not read anything. But he's like, well, he she could have fallen asleep. And if he was henpecked as much as he was and had resentment, he could have used that opportunity of falling asleep in the tub to have killed her easily. Because if she was already asleep, he just tips her over, holds her down. Yeah, she's going to splash around a bit, which doesn't account for why there was no water. But it would be almost a hybrid of everything. Now, this was just some over the table dinner talk that we
1: have. <laughs> just out of curiosity, did yes. your husband say that if you he finds you in response to the tub, I would lift out your whole body? I've had a lot of men say that to me, that they thought it was weird that he didn't lift up her whole body. In fact, one of the TV shows I referenced made a big deal out of that, but I mm-hmm. actually thought that. I would put a person sit them up too, because I've read yeah. he had, had first aid training where you should try not to move a person too much if you can avoid it, if you can get yes. them out of the risk. So maybe that was going through his head. I mean, he doesn't know. And he said to me, he's like, everything happens so fast. You hear that a lot in, in traumatic situations. Goes, yes. I don't know what I was thinking. This I just reacted. That is his statement. Yeah.
0: There, there's a lot. You find out a lot about yourself when you watch something traumatic happen in front of you. Uh, and how you're going to react under stress. And there's people who freeze and there's people who do and who, uh, what I I mean by do is action. They try to help. Um, So in the case, like you asked about what my husband would do, he would have probably propped her up because this is a real world situation. We were walking behind a woman at a farmer's market and she was an elderly woman obviously not a lot of muscle tone shuffling along and she tripped on a piece of cement and fell. And my instinct was to help her up. And my husband, whose parents both are retired medical field employees, um, he he stopped me and said, no, if she has broken something, helping her up is the worst thing you can do right now. So we had her sit in kind of a fetal position until uh, help could assist better than we could. So there's a real world scenario that I witnessed. And, See, it goes uh, to show
1: that different people can react in different ways to a traumatic situation. Now, mm-hmm. once again, I'm still holding out the possibility that, that, you know, he could have done this. However, if, if you believe his story, what I do think it's plausible, I think it's very plausible that you would just sit up a person, get their head out of the water. Mm -hmm. it would be the easiest way to eliminate that threat
0: Mm -hmm. yeah and to assess the situation too um so with trial number two that was so we talked about one so trial number two was a hung jury and didn't they let's see my notes say out of after 30 hours of deliberations they turned up to be a hung jury i can understand that sentiment completely
1: yeah Yeah, it was really interesting to hear from um one of the jurors went on a radio station and kind of characterized the vote as being a certain way however there was no actual vote taken this person was assuming that there were two jurors who thought he was not guilty and i interviewed five who told me they thought he was not guilty so it was almost an even split and see that's one of the misconceptions about this case is that you know, well, you know, that, that juror was even leaning toward, well, it wasn't heavily leaning toward guilt. And the jurors who did say they wanted to vote him not guilty, they felt like the a lot some of the jurors who were in the guilty column were not following the instructions, that they were going more on emotion than on the evidence which Mm -hmm. I, as a reporter, became very aware of. I've had a number of attorneys tell me, and I've seen it myself, um, where jurors want to bring a resolution to a case. They tend to want to believe the police, believe the prosecutors, and not think that those people could be incompetent or, or dishonest or... You know, I'm not saying that that is what happened in this case, but I'm just saying that there were mistakes made that possibly obscured the truth because we just don't know. There were tests that were not done. That is my number one concern about the way the investigation was done is there were tests that were not done that could have shown whether or not Sarah Widmer did have certain medical disorders, not just narcolepsy. There are other ones that were... Possible, but with a jury's going, well, anything is possible, and the prosecution is going, well, anything's possible. And so the most likely thing is that he did it. But is there a reasonable doubt? And they gave a big long definition that I won't go into here. What is reasonable doubt? And it's just that can you imagine that it's even plausible that something else happened?
2: How many homicides a year are there in Warren County?
1: Well, I don't remember in the county itself. I know that's in my book, but I believe, in fact, I know that this was the first time that a fresh homicide was declared in this small community, Hamilton Township, in at least a decade. Wow. And so it's very rare in Warren County in general. I Mm -hmm. think that there was, there's maybe one or less on average a year. Okay
0: interesting it reminds me a lot of where i grew up just farm town with the subdivision randomly sprawled there so um actually one of <laughs> sorry one of the interesting <laughs> things about the case was you had the Warren County county coroner um versus dr werner spitz and which okay. trial did this happen was this trial one where they had the uh I don't want to say the battle of the coroners, but they had differing opinions as to what happened to Sarah.
1: Yes. Um, Dr. Spitz did testify and he is very famous. In fact, um, he is considered the author of what is called the Bible of Forensic Pathology, which is the science of Death investigation basically it's called medical legal investigation of death. Spitz and Fisher's blah blah blah. It is like this thick. This book weighs like nine pounds or something ridiculous. It's 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 huge and it's hugely expensive. And um, so Dr. Spitz is literally wrote the book on it. And his statement, which I thought was very interesting, was that based on all of the known factors here, that. The manner of Sarah Widmer's death was not just undetermined, but undeterminable by anyone, including me, is what he said. And manner of death, just so for people who are listening who may not know, cause of death would be, in this case, drowning or a gunshot wound. That's the cause. The manner can be homicide, suicide, natural, um, there are five of them. And right now the other one's escaping me natural, or then there's undetermined. So, um, sorry, I can't remember right now like, uh, what the, what the fifth one is, but there are five manners of death and one of them can be undetermined, but he said, this one is undeterminable. By anyone. Wow. I thought it was very interesting for a very prominent guy to say that.
2: Well, yeah. Cause yeah. the forensics just aren't there. they, they- and that that is why i think he shouldn't have been convicted
1: but then there were a
2: whole bunch bunch of other things that came in with the third trial that kind of made you question well yeah so let's let's
0: move to the third trial then because wasn't there a surprise witness that showed up and uh talked to the jury (laughs) so please explain what happened with jury trial number three
1: so there was a woman named Jennifer Crew who was from Iowa and she ends up contacting Ryan Widmer as a result of his case airing on Dateline. Now for the life of me, I can't figure out, I like true crime stuff too, I always have, but I have never felt like randomly contacting, I contact people when I was you know, a reporter, right? To, to ask them things. I never felt like I wanted to contact a random dude Who was on tv and go hey i feel sympathy about your case or or, i'm curious about your case or whatever i never felt the need to do that but she apparently did she contacted him through a website that was set up by his supporters and they kind of struck up a friendship and from what i recall it was mostly centered around sports that Raya is a big sports fan and so was she and she said she didn't think he did it based on what she saw in dateline and so long story short, from what I understand, this is Brian's statement to me that she's texting him repeatedly all the time. And he's starting to feel like this is kind of strange. And so he doesn't want to like, he's trying to kind of say, look, I don't want to like hang out that much anymore or whatever. And he stops responding or, and he thinks that she didn't take kindly to that. And that's, uh, She also had a history of, um, she was on uh, methadone and she had a history of certain things that called into question her history of honesty. And she did take the witness stand and she testified that he had confessed to her that he did kill Sarah. Interestingly, again, I found some documents that showed that you would think if someone confesses murder to you, that you, those words would be seared in your mind. There were several variations of what she says she claims that he said. So I don't know whether to believe her or not, but I can tell you that the jurors, even the ones who convicted him, the ones I spoke to told me, oh, nobody believes her. So, but the prosecution put her on as like this star witness. They kept her name secret for a really long time under this, what was then a brand new law in Ohio that allowed them to cloak the identity of a person who claimed that they had information in a murder case for their protection. And so the defense wasn't able to find out her identity until right like in the midst of the trial, like right before she was going to testify. So they had very little time to do the background research that a defense team would normally do against a uh, star witness like that.
2: Yeah, that seems a bit unfair. Yeah.
1: It, but it was interesting to me that like they trot off this witness and made a big deal of it. And then the jurors who convicted him said, eh. but it was interesting. They said, uh, Well, we think something like what she described could have happened, but everything she stated had been pretty much already out there in the news. And she got some things wrong. Like, for example, she said that Ryan knocked over this little wastebasket, you know, most people, a little wastebasket in your bathroom for your tissue or whatever. It was dumped out. A police officer said he dumped it out. So it wasn't Ryan who did that. That's absolutely, that was established even in trial one, but she said, oh, he." told me that during the struggle that the tissue box, the the uh, waste can got knocked over. So mm-hmm. I, that part alone, I just think was, you know, it was in the media and she remembered it. And I, I don't know what the deal was there, but jurors did not believe her. That, <laughs> right.
2: That's good. <laughs> well, she's uh,
0: still testified. Oh, sorry, Jen. What?
2: No, go ahead i
0: have nothing oh okay so in that in that trial though they did find him guilty of murder it wasn't manslaughter it was murder
1: correct and they were actually given the option to Mm -hmm. go with manslaughter and they chose not to do that I don't remember which section, there's a couple different sections of the manslaughter law, but the jurors were not allowed to know that Ryan was given the opportunity to plead to one of those manslaughter charges, which would have gotten him out in five years. And if you're a prosecutor, you really believe in your case, and you think you have a murder case locked up, why would you give the bad guy and out that gets him out in five years if you really believed in your case you have this new mystery witness and everything I didn't understand that like what does that say to you about their case I kind of wonder uh so well then he would have been on the
2: record as guilty for sure yes yeah
1: but he immediately turned it down and no. said no I am not admitting to something I did not do some people don't share that with, they can interpret it one of two ways. Either you can look at it like, well, he, he's an innocent man and didn't want to do something he didn't do. Or somebody else might say, well, he thought it could just outsmart the system and get away with it. So that's why he decided to go roll the dice the third time we go to trial. Man. But then
2: again, he's, his personality does not lend itself to someone like Ted Bundy. Who absolutely thought he could outsmart the system? I mean, I know he was a serial killer and whatever, but you would expect some sort of outward narcissism. And Bundy case? had
0: charisma out the wazoo. Brian um, yeah. doesn't strike me no. as somebody with the most charisma or that much confidence. Though, man, that's tenacious to be able to sit through three trials.
1: He really didn't really have a choice.
2: Yes. other than yeah. he
1: would have taken this plea that that was floated oh that's a bad word to say can you cut that out um, to take this plea that was presented right before this plea was presented right before trial three it it you know he didn't he didn't take that
0: so yeah. currently ryan widmer is sitting in prison Correct. he has his first parole it comes up in july of 2025 so not too long four years still a long time in a prison
1: though and uh, do you still keep in contact with him well I asked Ryan to stay in touch with me because I didn't want to have that weird absence like I did for that six-year period and they go hey do you want to work on a book with me I told him I want to follow this case through to whatever happens um, and so he has agreed to. I speak to him about once a week still. And we talk mostly about, you know, things in the news, basically like coronavirus stuff or, you know, what's mm-hmm. going on in the prison. Um, he hasn't had any, he wasn't able to have any visitors for over a year because of COVID. And he finally oh, was wow. able to have visits again um, in person. So he just had to maintain contact with people via phone or they have like a video chat that they can do. And so, um, you know, and sometimes, you know, we will talk sports or whatever, but I usually just ask him what's going on in prison. He has fostered 50 dogs in prison. He was a real dog lover. And he and Sarah were going to adopt a puppy uh, before she uh, drowned. They were taking some of the final steps to adopt, I forget what breed it was, but it was a special breed of puppy that you have to kind of go through some steps to get the puppy. And they were doing that. So they were planning for a life together that never happened
2: yeah that's just tragic all the it way is tragic. yeah yeah
0: wow so um um <laughs> sorry i'm just trying to figure out how i can transition out of that and there is none so you have a few projects that you have in addition to the book that we're talking about tonight could you tell our audience a bit about them
1: well, the second book that I ended up writing, um, it, it came as a total surprise to me. Somebody who had read Surged really liked the way it was written, and they recommended me to a family who had been looking for a writer to tell the story of a woman, Mary Joe Cropper. Now, this is Cropper came from a prominent family and um, her dad was actually way, way more well-known. He was kind of very quiet, reserved. She was, made her living as a school teacher, even though she was a woman of financial means. Um, she just wanted to live kind of a normal life and raise her kids and be a teacher. So that's what she did. Um, and her dad, though, was Ralph Stolle, S-T-O-L-L-E, Stolle, as of the Lebanon Countryside YMCA was one of the largest YMCs in the country. I think it was the largest when it was first constructed. He, His name is on that building, was put on there posthumously because he, like her, didn't like having a lot of attention on himself, but he was an inventor. He actually invented the machinery that made the pop-top can possible. Before his machinery was invented, you had to take a, like a key and, you know, pop a top yep. that, instead of I remember the, those. He, the, he invented the not the pull tab itself. That was somebody else's invention, but he came up with the machinery that made it possible because it was like kind of a feat to do the crimping and all of the mach- the uh, the way that is configured. So that is where the family. Um, fortune came from, where his inventions, especially that one. And so here she is. She's a school teacher. She ends up getting breast cancer. And she decided after finding out about the process that women go through or men, actually about 1% of breast cancer patients are men. A lot of people forget that. And so it's a small number, but still they do, they can get it. So she felt like she it a confusing journey because you don't have anybody coordinating every step of the way, all these different events that you have to go to and all these nutritional experts and maybe somebody to counsel you for the emotional component. And, you know, maybe about, you know, your prosthetics or your hair or wig, or, you know, there's just so many things with it. And so the Bethesda North Hospital had a fledgling program cramped in under a stairwell. And so Mary Jo Cropper, through a friend's unfortunate diagnosis, did learn that there was this better process where they have a nurse navigator to move the patient through all of these steps and get these appointments done for you and explain things. So she wanted to support that. So she and this doctor became friends. It was actually a beautiful story of a friendship. And that as a result, there was this freestanding building that was mostly occupied then by this new uh, Mary Jo Cropper Family Center for Breast Care. So I wrote her biography. And uh, at first I was kind of like, oh, wow, I'm not a true true crime writer. I'm not a biographer. I don't know anything about medical stuff. And, but my husband, God bless his heart, he said, you know, you've written obituaries, you've written personality, personality profiles, and he said, you can do this. And it'll, it'll kind of cause you to spread your wings and learn something new, which was great. And I've developed a wonderful friendship with people in that family. And I'm very proud of the fact that all of the proceeds from that book do go to the center. And now book number three happened because of book number two. And uh, the publisher who did book number two had a lady who wanted to tell her story and said, aha, Because that story involves some true crime aspects, but it's also her life story, kind of like a biography. But it's being written in first person, as in her voice. She and I have been working on this together for a number of months now, and so now, by the time I'm done with this book, I can say I have—I'll be a published author in three different genres. How cool is that? But unexpected. Very pretty good. Yeah. 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 So where can we can we get your books? So my book, Submerged, which I will show you right here. This is the cover of it. It is available um, on Amazon, but you can't get an autographed one if that matters to you. And I also appreciate it if people order from me directly. And that would be on my website. The submerged will get you there. Okay, so there's a way to order through PayPal there. If you don't have a PayPal account, you could just use a credit card that charges through PayPal. And I will personally send you that autographed copy. I also send you an email and I correspond with a lot of readers, ask them for their questions and comments. So I'm always willing to talk to anybody who has even the craziest theory or the craziest question. Um, Cause maybe that's something I didn't think of. So I'm always willing to entertain that new information or that new question, that new comment. Uh, so I definitely appreciate it that way. And the Mary Jo Cropper book is also available on Amazon or through me. And again, the proceeds from that one do go to the center. And the third one will not be available until like mid, probably mid 2022 or early 2022, somewhere around there. Yes.
0: Well, please keep us um, in in the circle when the new book comes out so we can announce it on here. And also for our friends that listen to books via Audible, you do have submerged on audible as well and you read the book so
2: yeah that's fun i don't think i knew that that's awesome yeah i did it so yay! what was that what was that experience like
1: well it's exhausting to read for hours and hours and hours out loud but what was Good about it is i enjoy being able to emphasize the words and kind of dramatize it a little bit kind of calling on my high school theater experience or community theater i did a little bit of um and i i felt a, kind of nervous because i'm not a trained voice person i'm not a trained um but i did use a professional studio because i understand that the sound is very important and did my very best to try to read this in a compelling way for the listener. Yeah, oh, cool, yeah, okay.
0: and the reviews are good. Also, I have to ask about this, uh, competing as natural athletes in the sport of bodybuilding. How did you get into that?
1: Well, my husband and I, we actually met in a gym. We bumped into each other in the doorway of this gym, and as they say, the rest is history kind of thing. And I. We had a friend who was going to compete in this bodybuilding show. And I had never been to one before, but I'd seen a little bit of it on TV. And I kind of didn't like how some of the women looked too, too manly. And I didn't want to do that, right? Um, so, but when I went, I had a different impression because there are different categories. There's not like this, if you're a natural athlete, you don't get really, really big like that. You actually get smaller because you're shedding away all of your ex- excess fat. And I saw that there was this beautiful category. It's called figure, and it's somewhere between bodybuilding and what they now call bikini. And it's kind of like you're toned and you're defined, but you're not like, oh, you know, yeah. bulging muscles and you wear a sparkly bikini on stage. And so I thought, you know, why don't we do this? We, we talked about it, and, you know, we weren't married yet at that point. We we're like, let's do this, let's give it a try. And we had no idea how hard it is because that sport. Everything that to do it right, everything you eat has to be weighed and measured. Other than like mm-hmm. your coffee, and you can't drink like you know, you know. Hey, I'm gonna have a glass of wine. We have a beer. You can't do any of that if you're really in serious preparation mode, and you know, cutting down on carbs. And you get in low carb mode, you can't remember anything. You get grouchy, and and then there's a lot of crazy stuff that can happen during the preparation. And um, so it was really. For someone like me, I tend to be very um, outgoing, as Jen knows, I actually felt nervous, very unusual for me to step out on stage in a sparkly little bikini and high heels I felt kind of naked in front of all these people and someone had told me to imagine that in, they are naked instead. So I did that. <laughs> <laughs> and that actually helped me get rid of those jitters. But I felt myself shaking like crazy, but every time I looked poised, probably from the back row, maybe the people in the front <laughs> saw would be shaking like a leaf and like every little <laughs> tiny bit of fat I had left was jiggling. But um, <laughs> interestingly, what that sport did for me and for my husband It brought us closer together. And also I, I had this feeling of empowerment and I I always say this, I was being judged for how I looked on the outside, but what it did to me inside that, yes, I did the very best I could under all the circumstances to eat the right foods, to do all the workouts, to have this commitment that a lot of people can't do. And you made it on the stage and you were respectable (laughs) and it is a very empowering thing and it's kind of forces you to stay fit. And so we know we're not going to make a bunch of money doing it or anything like that. We do it just for the discipline. You know how some people just like to do a marathon, you know, this yeah. is and, yeah. and we've enjoyed it, but because of COVID, you know, it kind of went by the wayside and plus we're getting a little bit yeah. older and you don't want to be that charity case up on stage where like, oh, he looks really great for 75. You just <laughs> don't want that. <laughs> hard time
2: imagining that of you two because you you guys are like perfect oh gosh you should see their you should see their pictures Kat I mean they I mean and they've won how many competitions have you won both individually
1: and as a couple well we did compete in what's called the mixed pairs where we got to do a routine together we had so much fun with it uh we did um come on, feel the noise and (laughs) then a ballad kind of mixed together. It was really interesting. So we had gymnastics components built into it along with some ballet components. It was really different. Uh, But we have one, quite a few. I don't want to like, I don't want to sound like I'm bragging, you know, but I've always said, Hey, if it's factually provable, it's not bragging. So we do have some shelves in our basement that have a bunch of trophies and swords and things. But again, what it does for us inside the confidence that we feel from doing it and being able to strut on that stage in that tiny bikini feeling naked <laughs> in front of all these people, it, it does do something for your confidence. It g- gives you this empowerment where, you know what, I can, if I can do this, I can do anything. Yeah. I wish wow. I had it, Janice. I, I do not. I am one of those people that does not have that discipline. And I don't think I ever will, it's, it's hard to find and, you know, teach fitness class. And I always tell my fitness students, and I actually think this might be a good, way to wrap this up because a lot of people also want to write a book, right? And they don't do it. They never fulfill that dream. And why is that? It's because it's simple from the standpoint that you sit down and write it. Or it's simple because you come up with a plan to do your dieting and your exercise, to do your competition or whatever you do in life, but it's not easy. It's simple, but it's not easy. It's not easy to stick to that plan. It's not easy to find the internal fortitude and get rid of that voice that says, you're not gonna be any good, you can't do this. And so it kind of works together in a strange sort of way. It empowered me to feel like I could do this book. I did have mm. my of out, even all the years mm. as a writer, writing a book is way different than writing a, a story on deadline for a daily newspaper. Yeah. You have the finished product in your hands the next day, or maybe right now on the internet, you can see what you wrote and aha, feeling of accomplishment. But what if you spend a year of your life writing this book and nobody wants to read it or they hate it and you get those one-star reviews from nasty people. Um, But if you know that you've done your very best with whatever it is, that means you already have achieved it.
0: Mm Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I'd agree with that. And that's a great note to end on. So (laughs) thank you for joining us tonight. We yeah. got to learn a lot about um, the case with uh, Ryan Whitmer and Sarah Whitmer. So thank you. And please keep us in touch. Keep us in touch when the new story comes out as well.
1: Definitely. Well, and thank you so much for having me. I really oh, Christina
0: <laughs> wants to come on. I'm sorry, Christina. Ah, are
1: you bringing me on? <laughs> yeah. Hi, Christina. I'm so sorry. Come, Hi. come. I-, I can do whatever she needs.
3: Sorry, oh no! Christina. I was just gonna say, as someone who sleeps in the bathtub all the time, that was really scary. Don't do it.
0: Don't sleep in the bathtub. I've done it ever since I was little. Wow, <laughs> I, I didn't know you had this hobby. Yeah, no. I
3: read. I read in the bathtub. Trey gets really mad when I'll take books in the bathtub and read them, and you know sleep you- and
2: do you drop them in in the water when you fall asleep
3: um you know i i try i try to make sure that they don't get wet but okay. <laughs> but i you know i i was thinking but i i have never and many you know as old as i've i've never like been in danger you know so that was kind of interesting but if you had something with sleep paralysis it might it might well, yeah. um, make that difference
1: yeah. um
3: And I I like the advice to young writers. I'm actually writing an art book right now. It's it's very daunting because most of what I do is illustrate. And so that's why the importance of editors is good.
1: (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think everyone needs an editor. And, um, you know, because of self publishing now, it's a lot easier to publish your own book. But unfortunately, a lot of people don't have the money, or maybe they don't have the understanding that they need to find the money because. Everybody needs an editor. Everybody. Trust me. I am so glad that I had an editor to help me to guide me through this process with the books that I've written. I I know hands down that they're better for it.
0: Yes. Speaking as an editor, if you're a freelancer who's working on your own book, please hire an editor. We will notice.
2: (laughs) They will catch your spelling mistakes. It, yeah, I'll, it's
1: I'll, not just that.
3: Yeah, I know. <laughs> Publishing certainly has changed now because so many people have been laid off from you know the big publishers. Now you can get really good editors as freelancers now that worked at Penguin, Random House, or you know, I you know I see people now putting children's books together with with teams that worked on like the Hungry Caterpillar and. You know, like all these, yeah, I mean, because these people are, you know, now most publishers have a skeleton crew, crew. they don't actually have um, full staff anymore, and so Mm -hmm. if you're going to write a book, now's a good time to do it.
2: Yeah, there's
1: actually a book that I've read just recently that may be helpful to anybody who is looking to do any kind of creative endeavor, whether it's writing or what is called The War of Art. And the idea is it's a little tiny book. It's not very thick, but it talks about all the ways that we sabotage ourselves in our creative processes, that we doubt ourselves. We have other things that get in the way. We listen to that voice that says you can't do it or Mm -hmm. other voices that say you can't do it. Mm-hmm. Janice,
2: I had started reading that book probably over 10 years ago and didn't finish it because it was hitting too close to home. Oh, really? So you know what the <laughs> book I'm referring to? Wow. Yes. And I, I didn't really kind of realize that until uh, I
1: just said it. So maybe I need to read it again and get oh, past my shit. you see my copy <laughs> of it. It has underlines and stars. And on days oh. when I'm having that self-doubt weighing down on me because the case I'm working on now is extremely complicated. It's a couple of decades journey of this woman's life. Um, And I refer to that book and it definitely helps me. So I'm I'm so glad you guys gave me this opportunity to help say some things that may resonate with maybe you, Jen, or someone who (laughs) is looking to do any creative endeavor It it is a really, really daunting process. I think that even a lot of very accomplished writers can struggle with those distractions and those doubts. Mm Oh, yeah.
2: I agree. Well, especially for reporters. I mean, you you have to stick to what is known. You got to stick to the facts. You can't just make stuff up. And I think that makes it 10 times, 100 times harder than... Just writing fiction. I mean, with fiction, yes, you're creating something from nothing, but you can make it whatever you want, you know. Some people say that news reporters do that too. (laughs) Well, the bad ones do, yes.
1: (laughs) But I try not to be that reporter, my goodness. I mean, in fact, I'm a little bit too much of a stickler for facts. I think. Um, I do. I, I'm so, I remember waking up in the middle of the night in a cold sweat because I was afraid I misspelled somebody's name. <laughs> oh God. Do you ever, I ever get, I, think, <laughs> I
2: remember the copy desk getting calls or calling all the time. It's spelled Let this way. The in,
1: yes. <laughs> do Is you it get E I or I E for, you know, this person's yeah. name?
3: Yeah. Do you get a lot of people contacting you about your books, like with additional, have you ever gotten additional information from people that read them or be contacted by family? I mean, even our podcast, we've had people contact us from families uh, that we've done some of our true, true crime things on, you know, talking about their families or things that they knew or this relative that I had. Um, and I was wondering if you get a lot of contact from people. Um
1: right periodically hear from people who have a question or a comment or a theory that maybe I have of most of the things that people have raised I've heard before but I'll still talk to people on the off chance that they raise something I haven't heard of. Something that we didn't get into though is that there is actually still an active appeal going on. It's actually a, a writ habeas corpus. and most people don't know what that is. And it's not really an officially an appeal. It's basically a, it's, it's a bunch of claims that say, hey, this guy didn't get a, a fair trial for these reasons. And therefore he's being held. He was wrongfully convicted is the allegation. And there, the last action in that case was in 2017. It's been pending since 2014. Whoa, Ooh, my gosh. I'm still waiting for the federal judge to roll on that. So if you can what? put that in some place in this podcast, I just said a bunch of stuff just now that you don't want to put in, obviously. But I think if we can work that in, that's where the case stands right now is that we are still waiting to hear if the bathtub was seized improperly, if these tests that were not done on Sarah Whitmer should have been done to make sure that he received a fair trial.
2: What happened with, there was, um, a few years ago about DNA was it Sarah's DNA what it what happened with that
1: so that is part of what's still pending that the the prosecution has the only known source of Sarah's DNA because she was cremated and therefore there are tests that can be done from what I understand that would show possibly whether she had narcolepsy or one of these other disorders that can cause a person to have partial paralysis of their feet and legs and some of those disorders have been associated with guess what unexplained drownings
0: well okay now i'll do the end yes
1: (laughs) Yes. all right (laughs) thank Thank you you for joining us
0: it's all right. <laughs> Thank you for joining us tonight, Janice. It's been wonderful talking to you. Please keep us in touch when the new book comes out. And for all our listeners, if you would like to follow us on on, on social media in, in Cincinnati, you can find us at Sin Cabinet Curio on Twitter, it's cabinet of curiosities on Instagram. And of course, send your own hometown haunted mail to us at hometownhauntedmail at gmail.com. We love hearing from you. So from me. To you, good night and stay weird.